This podcast shares honest, unscripted conversations from ordinary people with extraordinary stories. It may contain mature themes, and listener discretion is advised. To look at resilience and what it really takes to find our way from the bottom up, we delve into the lives of people and stories that are real. I remember being in a recovery room and just looking down at a bandage and saying that my left breast was gone. And that to me is just a moment of trauma that I will never forget. And at 40 years of age to have that gone. Welcome to The Bottom Up Podcast. This episode hosted by Stephanie Bansomer-Brown. In this episode of The Bottom Up, we talk to Neredine Tassai about television, breast cancer, and a slower, more fulfilled life as a meditation teacher. Now cancer-free, 10 years on from her diagnosis, Neradine shares with us the ups and downs and how meditation enabled her to navigate the toughest time in her life. Thank you for coming to be on The Bottom Up. You're welcome. We've known each other 15 years. Maybe even more. We in fact worked together and you were in fact my boss. I was indeed. <laughs> so you know me quite well. But more recently, I suppose we reconnected through our own cancer journey and I'm really thrilled to join me on The Bottom Up. You're welcome. You've had a really varied career, but I'd like to start when I first met you and the world of TV. It was in the heyday of reality TV <laughs> and I was head of publicity at Channel 10. You were managing publicity and marketing in, in Melbourne. So that was a very crazy time. It was a new time in TV. There was a lot of energy. I think it was a really fun time in TV. There was still a bit of money left <laughs> in the industry. Um, there was a lot of new shows, a lot of new content. No one really knew what they were doing, but I think it was quite an exciting, fun time. And I actually, I really enjoyed that time. And I learned a lot from that time. A stressful time, do you think? Look, very stressful, probably not. And uh, I didn't really have, I didn't really have a lot of mentors in terms of women at that time. I think that was something that was lacking. It was still very much a male dominated industry, which it, we know it still is today. Uh, but it was a, you know, 24 seven job. That's for sure. Any little anecdotes or funny events that um, you want to share with our listeners? Oh, look, I think, um, you know, a lot of a lot of that time I probably can't talk about because I'm <laughs> so worried about liability <laughs> issues. But we would bring out a lot of international celebrities and Mr. I, Big. Yeah, that, that? That, that comes to <laughs> mind. I, I took him to a, a Logies and um, you know that was filled with all sorts of adventures and not long after I left uh, Channel 10 I was in a job with Warner Brothers and yes. I famously brought out uh, John Stamos that's who was on Carrie Ann and uh, that's often still uh, talked about as a top <laughs> celebrity meltdown because he literally did meltdown on live TV and that was a pretty interesting experience for me. Uh, which he blamed on uh, jet lag. So, uh, and I had to do a lot of damage control around that one. So that's the, that, that is um, one of the most, uh, yeah, interesting moments of my TV career, I would say, actually. <laughs> Looking back, how do you think that time in TV shaped who you are? I actually think I learnt a lot of resilience in TV and it's been really interesting for me now. I've been out of the industry for a couple of years and the thing I've learned was being really resourceful, oh. um, being quite uh, persistent, persevering, 
um, having energy, pushing through, um, sometimes to my detriment, I think, probably for my health. Uh, but definitely a, a certain understanding of people as well because the TV industry and media industry is definitely based on relationships. So being able to have good relationships with people, being able to pull favours, uh, working fast, there's no time. Uh, it's been very interesting for me renovating um, a shack in Tasmania uh, where the time, <laughs> time is very different and suddenly working with tradespeople who are, uh, have a different time frame than people in TV. So I guess the things that I um, value the most that I learnt from TV was you know, the relationships, people, um, good research skills and just that, that I think that continuing um, resilience that actually helped me down the track. When you left telly, you wrote a book, mm -hmm. How to Give Up Shopping or at least Cut Down. What drove you to write this book? Uh, actually, that was an interesting time in my life where I was regrouping and I was had, had a mortgage and I was trying to work out, I'd, I was trying to work out how to pay that mortgage off successfully, basically. <laughs> and I kept going to financial planners and they just kept saying to me, um, spend less and save more and I didn't really know how to do that. I hadn't actually had that kind of education. I just, I, I'd worked hard in TV and was so busy all the time that um, I didn't really think about where my money was going. And actually it was on that trip, it was a trip that I did done to Melbourne for the Logies with um, Mr Big, Chris Snope. <laughs> and I remember I was going to a show then called Rove, which ah, used to yes. be taped uh, 9.30 on a Tuesday night. And Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters were on. And I remember I'd been spending quite a lot of time with Chris Noth and he smoked cigars. And he so all, all my clothes stank of cigars. And so I decided that I would um, just go and buy a new top. And so I went and bought this top and to wear to Rove that night. And when I got back, to, that was in Melbourne, and when I got back to Sydney, I opened my wardrobe and that same top was in the wardrobe. <laughs> exactly the same top. And it was a black kind of lacy You're in blouse. Melbourne, it had to be black. Yeah. And, um, but you know, it, was, it wasn't an easy mistake to make. It wasn't like a t-shirt. It was quite a memorable blouse. And so I thought, okay, there's something missing in my life. And so I started doing research on spending and conscious spending and, and just the way that we consume a lot. And so I started off just trying to work out a system for myself. I thought it might be a little magazine article and then, I, then a little book evolved. I went to a writer's retreat and while I was there, I pitched it to a publisher who happened to be there and, and they picked it up and it got published. And I was really lucky, I, it, it came out right at the peak of the GFC and Perfect. Confessions of a Shopaholic, the movie got released <laughs> and I was still I was still working in the media so I was really lucky to get a lot of support um, publicity wise. How was it being on the other side? <laughs> it, it was interesting because I was going through a, a personal kind of issue which I'm sure we'll get to soon uh, but it was really good because I was able to um, be distracted by that but I did actually for the first time realise how difficult it was doing all those interviews because I used to always organise lots of interviews with my <laughs> talent and suddenly when I was doing them back to back I was like this is actually quite exhausting um, so that was kind of interesting yeah. yeah nice to flip it yeah your life when you're in the TV world was that um were you in a happy place? Look, I think that I was so busy that I didn't really have time to think about it. 
I was lucky that I um, I learnt to meditate in my late twenties when I was still working in magazines. And, and I had no idea of that. Yeah, and I you meditated when we were at ten. Yeah, and I had no idea about that. No, no one did actually, and I didn't share it because. You know, 20, especially over 20 years ago, meditation was not trendy, for sure. Mm. People thought it was some weird cultish thing. I had learnt it and it really helped me um, stay calm and with my energy levels and it helped me with clarity. So when I was working in TV, I didn't tell anyone. When I was head of publicity at 10, my PA knew and she was the only person. So every afternoon I would meditate at home in the morning. I meditate twice a day for 20 minutes. And then in the afternoon I would go and sit in a, back in those days, you had to have digi tapes, um, <laughs> in a cupboard where there was big digital tapes. And I would sit in that cupboard and meditate every afternoon for 20 minutes. Wow. And then go back and deal with all the dramas. And then often when we were on, you know, taping live shows, I would always meditate before then uh, when people would go for dinner breaks. And then when I became a producer as well, whenever anyone was on a dinner break or a lunch break, I would go and meditate then. So I think I kept my, I think I kept my sanity mm. um, through TV because I had that. But a lot of the time I was just, I was on the ride and I don't, don't think I stepped back to really think about, is there more, mm. you know? Not when I was in the throes of it anyway. That brings us to, in 2008, mm. your world was tipped upside down and you were diagnosed with breast cancer. Yep. I know firsthand that being delivered this news that, you know, fills you with dread and you have all sorts of emotions. But can you take us through those hours and the days after your initial diagnosis? I think for me, it was, it was shock, really, because we didn't know that there was any cancer in my family. I'd never thought about cancer. Um, it was definitely not on my radar. And uh, there was some um, mental health issues in my family and some addiction issues in my family. So I was always really aware of that. Mm. So I think I was always looking out for my mind and um, which is why I learned to meditate, I think, you know, initially. So cancer wasn't on my radar, but I had been feeling unwell for a couple of years and going to see various specialists and doctors. And I kept telling everyone that I knew there was something wrong with me. I was getting sinus infections and having colds and flus, and I knew there was something wrong with my immune system. And I was just, you know, shunted from one specialist to another and no one really came up with anything. And so when I got the diagnosis of breast cancer, it really was just an incredible shock. I think when you've had a, if there's sometimes when there's a family history, mm. it's on your radar, but that definitely wasn't on, on my radar. We since found out that my, it was in my father's family. Uh, my father was Croatian, the youngest of eight kids. And the, I have the BRCA1 gene, which mm -hmm. predisposes you to breast and ovarian cancer. And that was passed on by my father. And since I've had cancer, we've now known that a few of my cousins in Europe have had it as well. And it hasn't been present. This is the, I'm the first gen generation for it to be present in as well. We hear this so often though. I yeah. mean, I was the same. Yeah. You know, I knew something was wrong. Mm. And my doctor, you know, virtually yeah. said, no, no, you're too young. It's that instinct, isn't it, Nerodine? Yeah, you know? so I, I was diagnosed just basically for my 40th birthday. So I was, uh, I was in 30, you know, probably 38, 39 going to doctors and specialists and I knew there was something wrong. And so I always say to people now, if you think there's something wrong, just keep pushing it, just keep pushing it. And we know that now, you know, Fran Drescher and, and Kylie Minogue and lots of celebrities have been misdiagnosed as well. It's very interesting. 
you often, when it's not happening to you or in your little world, you tend to push it away and go, no, it can't happen to me. Mm. And, you know, you and I are living proof that mm. that is, is not the mm. way it goes. So what happened after that? Did you have a surgery? Yes, so I chose to have surgery. I had a mastectomy of my left breast. My, I, um, I had triple negative cancer, triple negative BRCA1, which is, that combination is considered the most, the deadliest of the breast cancers. Only about 2% of women have it and survival chances are not great. Uh, so I had the surgery and then I decided that I wouldn't have chemotherapy. Mm, which would, would have been a very big decision for you. Why did you choose to take a different path? I, I just intrinsically knew that chemotherapy wasn't the right thing for me. And one of the software programs that was spitting out statistics. <laughs> Don't you love this? We're dealing with life and death and they've got the software program in front of you. <laughs> said that I had, with the type of cancer that I had, with the pathology that I had, I had a 5% chance of still being alive in five years. Uh, that was not to say that I didn't have cancer in, the in that five years, but I had a 5% chance of still being alive. And so in my mind, I just decided that I would be the 5% that was still alive in five years. Wow, was and that that low? Yeah, it was that yeah, low. Wow. So, I, and I probably, you know, interestingly for me, I'm probably, I am a quite a stubborn person and, um, <laughs> and very strong-minded and strong-willed to the detriment of myself sometimes. But I think those traits served me well during cancer. And, and you know, working in TV and being quite pushy and quite bolshy, I decided to do cancer on my own terms. And there's a lot of fear in the system. It's mm. very expensive. Both, uh, both sides, both Western and alternative, there's a lot of money to be made in cancer. People are very vulnerable. Um, but I just thought, you know, I'd, and I had been meditating already for about 12 years when I was diagnosed, and I decided that that was the right thing for me, and I just was not going to budge. And I kept having to pretend, actually. They kept sending me away, and I promised I would be thinking about it, but I actually wasn't. I'd made up my mind straight away. I'd also seen a lot of people around me, um, as celebrities included and uh, people who'd gone through chemotherapy and, and hadn't survived. And I just thought I'd, quality of life was more important for me. So I think, you know, there's probably a few factors at play there. And I work with ca cancer patients a lot now and I always, I don't, I encourage them to do just whatever feels right for them. Mm. And that's what my gut instinct told me to do. And that's how I was able to, to just hold my ground. It wasn't easy no. um, because all the my my breast care nurse dropped me. I wasn't welcome to any what of the. What do you the, mean they dropped you? Well, I because I didn't make the decision that was advised by my doctors. Then the whole medical system withdrew their support. Wow. So that was what I did. I didn't expect that so to happen. So it's way on the highway. Yeah. Yeah. So because I chose to go against all the medical advice I was given, my breast care nurse was um, recalled. I was not welcome to sit in, 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 at that time anyway, in any support groups because I wasn't having chemotherapy. I looked the same, I had the surgery and I just went back to work. I literally had surgery and went back to work three weeks later. So I didn't have, I guess, what a lot of people think someone who's got cancer would look like. I just looked the same. Um, so yeah, I was, it, was, it was very lonely. It was a very lonely time for me. That's what I remember the most. 
the alienation. And would this have been your bottom moment? I think the bottom moment, actually the bottom moment I, I, I remember is not actually so much the diagnosis, but waking up in the recovery room and looking down and seeing no breasts. And I remember being in a recovery room with um, all, you know, old, much older people than me. And I knew that I would have to look down and just looking down at that, you know, looking down at a bandage and saying that my left breast was gone. And, you know, really emotional and really traumatic and lots of nurses around trying to calm me down. But that to me is just a moment of trauma that I will never forget. And it was horrific for me, you know, really horrific at 40 years of age to, to just, to have that gone you know, and know that your life's changed forever. It's not that just the physical of the breast, is yeah, it? Yeah, because when you, when you get diagnosed, it's so quick. Mm. It's a shock, you're in shock. Um, and it doesn't really make sense, I think, until, you know, you either start embark on treatment or you've had the surgery and then you realise this is real. You know, this is actually real. And I think, it's, it, I think that moment was my bottom moment, yeah. You're very close to your family and mm. you're from Melbourne Girl mm. and you're in Sydney at the time. Mm. How did they cope with the fact that you decided not to go through with chemo? Uh, initially they were uh, concerned and then they were supportive of it. Uh, I think they knew that, again, I'm quite stubborn. Um, and I, you know, my mother was with me and we went to see all these oncologists and no one really had great answers for me. That was the other thing that was interesting. No one could give me any guarantees. And so they were actually in the, you know, in the end, quite supportive of my choices. Didn't really understand what I was going to do or how that was going to work, but they were supportive. Not everyone that was though around me. You know, a lot of people argued with me and, um, didn't understand why I would take that risk. So for our listeners, and they might be in a similar situation, what piece of advice would you give them? I think it's to find some quiet, some stillness, and to speak to people, to do research, and then make the decision that feels right for you. So I was actually, the one thing I am I, grateful for is that a couple of women who were in the TV industry at the time, um, journalists and producers reached out to me and talked to me about their own experiences. And I, and I think the journalist in me probably served me well in that I went out and talked to as many people as I could. I met two women who were both nurses who had been nurses and had had uh, lumpectomies and then chose to have mastectomies because that was a big choice for me as well. I was offered a lumpectomy. Uh, not many, I was on the borderline and so not, not many women my age would have chosen to go with a mastectomy, but they had had recurrences and I knew that that was, a, that was quite common. So the decisions I made were quite brutal, I guess, mm. for, from some people's point of view. But I was doing what felt, again, what felt right for me. Um, so I think it's about not listening to even your, you know, your family, your friends, your partners. It's your body and you have to do what's right for you. And even you know, a lot of people would say to me that I took risks that 
other women couldn't take because they didn't that I didn't have children, um, which I always found quite uh, quite upsetting. Ooh, um, yes. They would say it's all right for you, you don't have kids, so you could take that risk. My life was just, I felt my life was just as valuable without children. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, so a lot of, there's a lot of fear in the industry, as you know. Um, so a lot of people get scared into making decisions or they make decisions that their families think are right for them. And if mental health is not an issue for you, then you should be able to make that decision on your own. I think that's pretty critical. You travelled to India. Tell us about that time. Yeah, so I had a very strange kind of few years of recovery. So for three years, I was a bit of a fanatic. <laughs> I, I didn't, didn't have one sip of alcohol. All the food I ate was organic, pretty much a vegan diet, really, really strict. You know, I'd do four or five hours of meditation at a time. And the, the advice that I got actually at the time that helped me the most was from a, a doctor that said to me, use the drive and ambition that you have had in your career for your health. So at any given time, I would always check in and, and, and think, is this good for my health? And at that time, my scans were every six months and they were really critical. So I was living in these strange kind of six monthly increments, mm. which I think a lot of people who in the early days of your cancer survival, that's, what you, that's how you live from scan to scan. So one minute I was meditating in caves in India and the next minute I was back, you know, working on a show. So that was a... It what was, show was it? <laughs> it was that we were doing This Is Your Life specials. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so we did a bunch of This Is Your Life specials that we shot in Melbourne. And um, yeah, so in between one of those shows, I, I went to India. While I was there, I, I, I met a man, a, a, an Indian holy man, who actually did a reading for me and meditated with me and did some prayers for me. And he said to me, your body's strong and your, your body's strong, blood clean, you know, you'll, you'll be fine. You'll, you won't get cancer again. And I, I just, I held on to those words a lot. And I think that's, you just need someone to give you hope. And he was the only person that did because no one in the medical industry could. And, you know, no one else was going to, to, to do that. So that was really important to me. On that trip though, I did have, I found a lump underneath my right arm and I was really worried. I had a few people look at it and people were telling me it was an inflamed lymph node and I thought, oh no, the cancer's back. This is it, it's all over. And I was very emotional, didn't tell anyone. I got, as soon as I got back to Melbourne, I went and got it checked and it was from the tetanus shot that I'd had. Oh, um, and it was just a little piece of, like a little piece of fat that had kind of coagulated in my arm. And it was at that moment that I decided that I wasn't gonna let fear interfere in my life because I really realised that during that three years that I was just living very fear-based. And so I tried to turn things around at that time as well. I think that's a very common feeling for mm. people going through cancer. Mm. I've just recently had my six-year scan and mm. I'm waiting for those tests. Mm. And as much as I try and tell myself, don't mm. worry, you've got that there's it an element go away. of fear, it never goes away, no, does it? No. Is it always still there for you in the back of your mind? Yeah, I think it's always still yeah. there. Like I think it's it's always still there because I I think because it's been ten years and I'm about to turn fifty, I think I now just think, well, if it comes back I'll deal with it, whatever whatever happens. Um, and you know, if that's my journey, then that's my journey. I've had a really full life. I want to talk about death for a moment. Mm. Um, you and I've both faced mm. it. 
Does death scare you after no. what you've been through? No, it's no. really interesting. It, death doesn't scare me. And I think maybe because I also, the, the meditation practice that I do, the time spent in India, I think my soul will have a life after my body um, goes away or drops. In, in India, they have an expression that they, they call it when, you're, when you drop your body. Um, they, you drop your body, but your soul lives on. And I quite yeah. like that, I, that idea. So I feel like, you know, whenever I drop my body, my soul will live on somewhere. And, um, and I did, the way that I learnt to live after cancer was by confronting my fear of death. And I think once you've confronted your fear of death, then it's okay, you know. Mm. That's the worst thing that can happen to you. <laughs> you're a meditation teacher mm -hmm. and you're a mentor. Talk us through, you know, where you're at now and what you're doing with meditation. Okay, so um, I teach Vedic meditation, which is a 5,000 year old Indian tradition. And it was designed for what they call householders, just for regular people. Yeah. I do a little ceremony, I give people a mantra. They meditate for 20 minutes a day, twice a day. Similar tradition is uh, transcendental meditation, a lot of people know about, that the Beatles made famous. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I just teach all sorts of people from all walks of life to meditate. And then I also do some work specifically with cancer patients. And, and then I do some mentoring work, which is, again, for people professional and with a kind of a, a big kind of touch of holistic stuff on the side, because the interesting thing about our lives is even though we put them in compartments, they're all, everything's actually connected. Mm. And so if you feel good about one aspect of your life, then it, uh, it helps with all the rest of it. So, you know, at the end of the day, I teach people just to find some stillness so that they can um, tap into their intuition and make the right decisions for them in their lives. Uh, the meditation is actually just, it's a stress management technique and we can all use that and we all need that. And because our lives are so fast paced, we're just overwhelmed with stimulation. So you, you just want to be able to release that stress every day. I talk a lot about it like emptying the inbox, you know, <laughs> emptying some of the span from the inbox. We walk around our, with our phones trying to charge them all the time. We're always very excited when our phone's at 100% and yet we don't recharge ourselves. So it's about giving back to yourself and then, you know, you're able to give back to everyone around you as well. How do you think meditation can help those going through cancer treatment? I get sent cancer patients now from oncologists who say to me that the efficacy of their treatment, whatever it is, I haven't worked with anyone who hasn't had chemo. Um, and no, I don't know anyone who's taken my path, but they know the efficacy of pharmaceuticals actually work when the nervous system is calmer. Mm. So when the nervous system is really stressed, a lot of uh, drugs uh, don't work as well. So, you know, a lot of people having chemotherapy or actually and immunotherapy are being sent to learn to meditate to, to help the, um, the drugs work better. So that's been quite interesting for me as well. So I don't have a problem with anyone who has chemo. I just like to help people, you know, get through that journey, um, you know, in, in the easiest way they can. What are some of the best excuses people have given you for not meditating? Everyone will say they're too busy. Even my 82 year old student sometimes tells me she's too busy. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, so we're all too busy and we wear busyness as a badge of honour in our society. 
so that that's the excuse that pretty much everyone will have. What people who meditate regularly find is that it gives them back time because when you're calm and uh, collected and you have clarity, you're able to, to make the right decisions. You end up having less thoughts, but you're able to prioritise the things that you need to do. And so people that meditate regularly understand how it gives them back time. What is it about meditation that makes you, your heart sing? I help people change their lives and I see people change and I see people become happier and calmer and that's incredibly rewarding you know and I didn't people hug me and say thank you all the time and that didn't happen in TV <laughs> that often no, it doesn't happen very often at all <laughs> you know I worked in an industry where usually you heard from people when things went wrong rather than when things went right so it's 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 been really refreshing actually I can remember the day when I was I was sick and I got home and there was a gift on my doorstep and it was from yourself. And from memory it was a lovely candle but it wasn't the gift that made my heart sing, it was your words. And I don't know whether you actually realise how much that changed for me mm. because um, it was the fact that somebody that I had not connected with in a long time cared enough for me and reached out. And that meant the world to me. Mm. People that have been in your life, were there any surprising moments? Yeah, and I think that, you know, most people that have gone through a traumatic experience will report this, is that you're, you get quite surprised about mm. the people that are there for you and also the people that are not there for you. <laughs> yes. You know, and, and that's interesting as well. And I was really lucky to connect with a, a counsellor who specialised in, in cancer patients. And she said to me, you will make friends and you will lose friends mm. through this period. And I, I said, no, that's, that won't happen to me. I've got great friends. And um, I did lose friends mm. and people did stay away. And it's interesting now that I'm still around, um, you know, people come back. But, you know, I, I feel like those people weren't there for me when I needed them. And, you know, I don't know if they're the sort of people that I want in my life then. But I do remember when I heard about your diagnosis and I just knew the words that I wanted, I wanted to hear. Mm. And they're the words that, and you know, and I think that one of the things I often say to people is, um, you know, it, it is shit. It's <laughs> it a shit, shit time. It's shit. In my um, instance, literally. You know, it's shit, but it's, uh, you're stronger than you think and you'll get through this. Yes. And I think that they're the sort of, that's the sort of language you want to hear at that time because you are in shock. Um, you know, you're confused. You don't know what to do. And it's just good to know that someone else has been through it mm. and understands how you feel. Yes. A few quick questions. What do you wish you could have told your 20-year-old self looking back? You'll be fine. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> Why is it important for us to recognise and accept that we do have failures and that we will have rock-bottom moments? I think once you accept a situation, then you're able to deal with it. So I think that's really important. What makes you happy? Um, everything makes me happy, just life. You know, I'm, I'm just very glad to be alive. Um, I've got a really great partner now and um, the work that I do makes me happy, but I just, I just try and find joy in everything I do, whether it's a cup of tea or sunshine or anything, you know, so I'm, I'm pretty easily pleased these days. Finally, you're soon to be 50 and you celebrate your 10 years of being cancer free. Mm. What's next for Neridine Tassai? Um, there's another book. 
great. And my book is about my journey, which uh, the choices that I made in cancer and leaving TV and yeah, reconnecting, actually reconnecting with my partner who I knew when I was 20. So I'd probably also tell my 20 year old self, by the way, that guy that you're with now, you're going to end up with him when you're 50. Um, <laughs> just a slower life now, I think, enjoying life, just taking time to enjoy everything. Thank you, Nerudine, for joining us at The Bottom Up and for connecting with us and sharing your story. You are an inspiration and you've been an inspiration to me. So thank you. Thank you, you're welcome. For more information or to subscribe, please go to thebottomup.com.au. The Bottom Up, helping lighten the load, entertain and connect through conversation. <laughs>